You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Faith Under Test, it is in the trials of life, and there are many, that we learn to depend on God. Philip Edwards will explain how God's closeness at those times make it all worthwhile. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching, and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules, and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome this evening to our fourth and last in the series of uh, practicing the presence of God in our lives. I hope you've been putting some of these things into practice or thinking about them and just, um, yeah, just we have to practice it because we have to change the nature that we have uh, from our old fallen nature, as it were, to the new nature where we're relating to God all the time. Now, last week I deviated a little bit and so we didn't cover all the notes that we're supposed to. So tonight's gonna be a little bit of a catch up time. So I'll move uh, quite quickly through them. There's uh, six, well, seven, but really six more disciplines to learn this evening. So we'll do three in the first half and maybe four in the second. But let's pray before we uh, do our study this evening. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your promise always to be with us. And therefore we want to practice being with you, not to ignore you or forget you in any sense. And we know you're here tonight. You're not here because we're praying, you're here because you're always with us. You delight to spend time with us, you love us. And uh, Lord, it delights your heart when we look into subjects like this that we might advance our Christian walk with you. Open our hearts and minds, we pray, and bless us as we give ourselves to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The first discipline then, this evening, and it's the ninth in our list, um, I want to speak about the importance of meeting together as Christians. Probably with the exception of uh, those that are infirmed or housebound, Christians generally meet together. Unless they've been particularly upset or something has happened to them, most Christians throughout the world feel a need, a desire to meet together with other Christians. To, we call it fellowship. In some, some churches are called fellowships and the idea is that we come and join ourselves together in fellowship. Just to direct you to two or three verses. It says in Matthew 18 and 20, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am. That's a promise that God is saying, if you fellowship together, uh, and coming together is more than just two bodies turning up, coming together is to come together with one mind, one desire, one purpose, whether it be to worship or to study. The importance is that we come together, and in that togetherness, God says, I will be with you. I will presence myself in a special way. You could say, well, you brought God with you and I brought God with me on the inside of me. But he said, I will presence myself in a special way because you've come together. We know it was in the uh, custom of Jesus to go to the synagogue on a weekly basis. It says in Mark 1 and 21, 
When the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue. So it seems to be his practice wherever that was possible. And again, that uh, verse that we probably all know well, Hebrews 10 and 25, it says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. So in this verse, he's saying the reason for your meeting together is that you would be encouraged. I do hope that when you do go to church, your fellowship, that you meet with others, that you walk away when you finished encouraged. If you're not, something's gone wrong because the very purpose of coming together is that you would be built up, you would be encouraged that somehow coming together there would be a corporate blessing of God that would be yours. Not all people understand the power and the significance of meeting together corporately. They don't know what happens because something special, something different happens when Christians gather together. In the presence of other Christians where you're doing things together, I believe there's an opening of one spirit to each other. So if you're praying together and singing together, listening, uh, sharing, worshipping, you're opening yourselves up to one another. You want to hear what they're saying. You want to hear how they're singing and you want to sing with them. There's a joining together in all the activities of church. And in this opening up of ourselves to others, then uh, God himself is open to us or we're more open to him. So there's something that emotionally happens, physically happens, that as we gather together, we become open. Our spirits become open to God. When God's people come together in unity, and it's an important thing that we come in agreement. I've been in some church meetings where it's been anything but unity. And you can almost feel the atmosphere. You're thinking, I don't want to be here. Maybe there's a tension in the church or something has happened or there's a dispute of some sort. And instead of being harmonious and, and unity, you, you, you feel the, the friction and it's awful. Matthew 18 and 19 says this, Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. God's really into this in a big way, isn't it? The idea of coming together, being united in agreement. And again in Psalm 133, starting in the first verse, and just I'll jump to verse three, he said, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. I think in the authorised, I like it better, it says the Lord commands his blessing. So it's like if you meet together in unity, you can't get anything but this blessing that is commanded upon you. Fellowship then, going to church, meeting with other Christians, be it a small group or larger group, the idea of God is that he will come with his corporate presence upon us. He will fill the building with his spirit and himself. And we come and we're enriched through the whole process. C.S. Lewis, he expressed it in a similar thought. He said this, God can only show himself as he really is 
to men and women who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing him to one another. Consequently, the only really adequate instrument of learning about God is the whole Christian community waiting for him together. The closer we get to each other, the closer we get to God. And the closer we get to God, the closer we'll want to get to each other. There's tremendous truth in this. Church, the fellowship, the coming together of people, there is something, something wrong simply to go in, sit in rows, not even say good morning or hello to those people around you, look at the back of somebody's head, uh, sing without really fellowshipping or to listen and then to get up and leave is like, was that it? Was that what God intended? Of course not. He intended us to come together, to relate together, to share together, to, to pray for each other, to allow that corporate blessing to come upon our lives. We've slipped into this auditorium type thing with people at the front uh, as though they were somehow performing or doing something and we all sit quietly and listen and then leave. And you say, well, it works. It works to a measure. Uh, there are places for teaching. I understand that. Someone stands at the front and he, he teaches. This is what I'm doing now. But church needs to be a lot more than that. There needs to be that place of fellowship, of coming together, of praying, of sharing one's lives together. If we don't take the necessary steps to experience true Christian fellowship, we deprive ourselves of the corporate blessing of God. Sometimes we think, oh, whenever I get together with other Christians, I've got to do something spiritual. No. If we meet together with other Christians, the love that's in my heart flows into your heart and your love flows into my heart and we encourage one another and we bless one another and we share things together and we listen to one another. God can only mediate his presence in and through a community to the extent that they are open to him and to one another. This one another is important. If you go to church and you're open to God, that's a wonderful thing. But if you're not open to each other, God says, this isn't going to work. I've read all those verses. He says, when you come together in unity, that's when I'm blessed. That's when I will command the blessing upon you. That's when I come and really minister into your heart. I love this little verse in, in Romans, Romans 1 and 11. He says, I long to see you, this is Paul speaking obviously to the church at Rome, he says, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Now you say, oh yeah, I could well believe that. I mean, sitting in the presence of Paul, I mean, he just knew more than any other person. I mean, God just downloaded to him what the kingdom was all about. You could have just listened to him all night, and some did, didn't they? Uh, uh, but he says something else in this passage. He says this, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged 
by each other. Isn't that? And he's not just being gracious and nice and saying something. He really means this. He really means that I will come and I will pour out my heart to you and you will minister to me, not simply by listening to what I have to say, but there will be some mutual blessing that will flow to me. I, I preach a lot externally, and some churches I go to, um, there's a real blessing in, in sharing, and you feel almost the, the people are blessing you back. Just, it's, it's a wonderful experience. But I've gone to quite a number of churches, and then I, I come home to my wife and she says, how was it? And I go, it's really hard work. It's as though they didn't want to be there. They weren't really listening. They didn't care. There, there was no mutual feeding back, as it were. So, so I was blessed in the process as well. There has to be this mutual thing that flows between us in fellowship with God's people. What makes a group of Christians then a living fellowship? What makes it alive? It should be alive and active. There should be something that is so wonderful about meeting with other Christians. We can't wait to get there. We want to be there. We, we, just, we would go early, make sure we were there. I spent some time in Toronto when the Toronto Blessing uh, was happening in, in that particular place. And uh, if you didn't get there early to the meeting, you didn't get to the meeting at all. That was the reality. You might have got in the overflow room, but if you were late at all, you wouldn't even got in the overflow room. You had to stand outside and hope you could hear something. See, there is something when God turns up, people want to come. And I would suggest to you, if the church were to turn up with unity and love and a desire for one another, we would experience a greater anointing of God upon us. And people would just come into the place and thinking, wow, God is in this place. Because there is such a flow of the love of God, such a, a flow between individuals. So what's your church like? What is your fellowship like? Is it a place where you feel you belong? That you really belong there? That not to go would hurt you? Not simply belong to Christ, we know we belong to Christ, but that we belong to each other. See, that's what church should be. And that's when we experience the presence of God as we fellowship together. A church where people have no true relationship with each other, it blocks the mediation of God's corporate presence amongst us. He just doesn't turn up. We go through the program and it was fine. Uh, the worship person did all right and the, the preacher was fine and everything went to order, everything went to plan. There was nothing. But did God come and bless himself amongst us and pour out his blessing? It's important that we, we do our part and so we can, as it were, induce the Holy Spirit to come upon us corporate blessing of God. The second discipline I want to do in this section is that of being transformed by God. 
transformed, as it were, by his Holy Spirit. He comes, doesn't he, to present God to us, to present Christ to us. He said, Jesus said, I and the Father will come and dwell with you. And of course, he was referring to when he sent the Holy Spirit, that would happen. When Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit, he used three prepositions. He said, the Holy Spirit will be with you. Then he said, the Holy Spirit will be in you. And finally, he said, the Holy Spirit will be upon you. Now, some people get very confused with all this. I don't think it's confusing. I think it's quite straightforward. So let's have a go and try to unravel this for you. It says in John 14 and 17, he's talking about the spirit of truth. He said, the world cannot accept him, that is the spirit of truth, because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the world doesn't appreciate the Holy Spirit at all, doesn't see him or know him. But you know him, he says to Christians, for he lives with you and will be in you. So when he was speaking to the disciples that are around him at that time, he said, he lives with you now, but a day is coming when he will be inside of you. So let's take this first preposition, the idea of him being just with us, not not in us or upon us, but with us. When Jesus gathered the, uh, the 12 disciples and called them to be apostles, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God, to deliver people, to heal the sick and so forth, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with them. He wasn't in them, he was with them. He accompanied them as they went. So it was the Spirit working with them that was able to uh, do the things that he did. So the Spirit was working with them. Post-resurrection, before Jesus ascended, remember he met with the apostles, some of the disciples possibly as well, in the upper room that was locked, and it says Jesus entered into the room, he had a dialogue with them. Then he said he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, if I breathe on you, very close to you, and you breathe in, which will naturally do, what I've breathed out is breathed into you. That's how we pass colds onto one another, isn't it? I think something like that, okay. And all these, these other awful things, not that we go around breathing over one another, or you might do, I don't know. Anyway, but, but the idea, the picture is that Jesus, Jesus breathed on them, and of course, breath is spirit, and the spirit that flowed from him flowed into these people. This was the point at which they were regenerated. This is when they were born again. They received the spirit of God into them. Everyone who receives Christ as their personal saviour, the Holy Spirit of God comes into them. And the Holy Spirit of God in us regenerates us and makes us born again causes the spirit within us to come alive to God so we can receive, we can hear him, we can understand him, and we can walk with him. So the spirit was then in them. First the spirit was with them, then the spirit was in them. Now the third proposition, uh, preposition we see in Acts 1 and verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit, it says, comes upon you. 
the prophetic reference we know is to the day of Pentecost. So at Pentecost, these disciples with the apostles and all of them, they, they knew the Holy, the, what it was to have the Holy Spirit with them. And in a sense, the Holy Spirit was with them. He had breathed over them. And so they knew what it was to have the Holy Spirit within them. And now something wonderful was going to happen is the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And in coming upon them, the fullness of the Spirit would simply saturate them. It was though they were just being uh, under a, a waterfall, as it were, and it was pouring out upon them. So they had the Spirit within them, the Spirit with them, and now the Spirit upon them. Immediately this happened, we know from reading in the book of Acts, a great power transformed them on the inside. They were frightened, remember, timid as it were, to go out and talk to people. As I said before, they were hiding in a locked room. They were a little bit bolder now since, uh, since they were regenerated by the Spirit. But something, something dramatic was going to happen. The Spirit of God came upon them and all doubt and fear left them. They burst out of the room where they were, unafraid of the crowds, and just started to proclaim the gospel to the people. A lot of them spoke in tongues. We know that was the evidence of the Spirit of God just coming and just pouring out upon them. And it says later, they turned the world upside down. These men, these women who had received the Spirit, this fulfilling, this filling, the fullness of the Spirit upon them. We need it. We need more of the filling of the Spirit of God to appreciate the presence of God. He's given us this wonderful gift so we can speak in a language that only God understands. People say, what's the benefit of speaking in tongues? <laughs> How long have you got? Okay. The idea that you and God you can have this language together that is the voice or the words of the Spirit and you can glorify God in a heavenly language or this Spirit-filled language, a language that you don't understand but you've yielded to the Spirit of God that he might operate and speak through you. It's a wonderful releaser. It's a wonderful way of, of bringing ourselves into God's presence if you're ever down and it's dark and it's, it's like everything's closing in on you, just start praying in tongues. You say, you know, joking. No, no, yeah, it works. You say, does it? Well, you'll have to try it. I don't know. It works for me. It might work for you as well. Of course it works. Of course it works. If there's fear, well, just start praying in tongues. Just quietly start praying in tongues. And the presence of God will come so close to you, the fear will go. I guarantee it, every time. We must do it. Or if you never feel afraid, or you never feel like under the weather, or you know, that's all right, don't worry about it. Because we, we have the Holy Spirit to, to speak through us and pray through us for many, many other reasons. When we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit comes. And he, we allow him to pray through us. So we pray the very will and the purposes of God. Paul said, I don't know what to pray. So I allow the Spirit to pray through me. 
we must then be open and practice more and more to allow the Spirit of God to flow through our lives, to bring us into the very presence of God. The last one I just want to look at in this section is living for God, to live for him. The next discipline, it might seem a little bit out of place. Um, it's keeping our physical bodies uh, in a good place to be physically uh, strong enough uh, as far as possible to be healthy, um, to be in good health, because we recognize that we, inside this temple, God lives. Our soul dwells within us. And it's in our soul, our inner being, that God communicates and God comes and dwells and talks with us. God designed our bodies in such a way that we would be able to house the very Spirit of God. That's the way he designed them. He made Adam and he breathed his spirit within him. He, he did more than just breathe life into him. The very spirit of God entered into this man so he could fellowship and communicate with God. We know at the fall that died within him, his ability to communicate with God. So our physical bodies were designed and created that we would house the very spirit of God we have to look after them. Our houses fall into disrepair. Through, through sin, uh, death entered our bodies. And all of us, we carry death around in us all the time. It will kill us in the end, this death that dwells within us. It, it, it will, it will. And that's a good thing, otherwise we're stuck here forever. No one wants that really. We want to move on to this next world God has for us. It's interesting, just as our, uh, our soul can affect our body, so our body can affect our soul. And so both really work in harmony. They both have to be strong and healthy and well. There isn't one word in scripture that leads us to have a morbid view of our bodies. There isn't one. There was some teaching uh, amongst the Gnostics. They believed that we were st spiritual beings primarily, and that's all God was really interested in, our spiritual relationship with him. And if our bodies went off and sinned and did anything wicked or evil, God wasn't too upset with that, because what he was interested in is your spirit person, your spirit being. Well, that's, we know that's not right. That's completely wrong. What you do with your body is as just as important to God as what you do with your spirit or your soul. It's just as important. You can't separate them. We are exhorted to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. If you present your body to God, here's my body, God, he gets my spirit and soul as well because I can't take them out, can I? I can't separate them. So in a sense, this is what we do. We present our bodies to God. We just give him everything that we are. Our bodies, we know, were affected by the fall. I said that. 
the curse that fell on the earth affected the bodies, just to show that the body is connected. It says, it's regarding the curses, it said of the woman, this is what it says in Genesis 3.16, it says, I will, in, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. With pain, you will give birth to children. Now, I'm, I'm presuming that God's plan was that she would have children. She had, hadn't got children prior to this. I presume that it was in the plan of God for her to have it, but she wouldn't have had pain in childbirth. I'm presuming that for it to be the curse. But she was cursed, and part of the result of the curse was pain physically in her body. So the pain that she experienced was the result of what happened spiritually. So when we get something spiritually wrong, it creates pain within our body. Pain within our body, the other way around, can dampen us or drag us down from being spiritual. So the two go together. It wasn't only the, man, the woman that suffered this, the man suffered a similar thing. He said, through painful toil, you will eat, uh, eat of it, that's the ground, all the days of your life. Uh, so um, I don't know what gardening was like before the fall. It seemed it was pretty easy, okay, and things just shot out the ground and you just picked them up willy-nilly and just got on with life and it all sort of looked after itself. But after the fall, it was going to be painful. <laughs> pain, you see. It was pain for him and it was pain for her. So this idea that, that somehow uh, our physical condition has nothing to do with our spiritual condition, that's not true. It is. Sometimes we're sick because of our spiritual condition, because of what we've neglected to do or what we're neglecting to do now. We can't separate them out. Now you have to be very careful with people when you share some things with them because they end up thinking, oh, you're saying I'm not spiritually, something wrong with me spiritually, that's why I'm ill. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we can't just say they're separate. They're not separate. They're bound together, and Scripture is clear about that. As a result, then, of this sin, death entered the body. It says in uh, another verse, a little bit closer to that one as well, he says, you will return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Jesus, he accepted his body as a gift from God. I think we need to do a very similar thing we need to see that our bodies are not something for us to do what we want and to enjoy what we want, and, but they're created by God for his service. It, Jesus said this, or it's uh, recorded uh, that he said it in Hebrews 10 and 5. He said, a body you have prepared for me. Jesus offered his body to God as a vehicle for him. A vehicle for God's purpose. Something that God could use to work through. Perhaps that's why you have a body. As Christians, we must believe that. The body that I have is for his purpose, is for his service, is for his worship, 
is for, for me to pray, is for me to, to fellowship, for me to love, for me to give, to, for me to support. This body that I have, it functions for the purposes of God. Jesus would have been balanced with his body. He would have slept enough, so it was refreshed, but he wasn't lazy. Uh, eating, um, well, we're, we have plenty of food in this country, don't we? We probably have too much. Um, I feel a bit guilty saying things like this now, looking at the shape of me and my size. Uh, we could all be, perhaps, well, I could definitely be a little bit thinner. But enough food to keep himself fit, but not too much food to make himself fat. Because all this drains us of strength, drains us of energy. The things that we would like to do to serve God, we can't because we've been sloppy with the body that is given us. We should do enough exercise to make it fit, but not be preoccupied with our image, uh, as some people tend to be. Our bodies, then, we know, are temples of the Almighty. He says, Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he dwells within us? They're holy. Your body is holy. It's separated unto God. It's pure. So holy means those both, both things, pure and separated unto God for his service. These bodies he has given us are both to enjoy creation that he's made, and also to enjoy God. Enjoying the presence of God in his beautiful world through worship, through fellowship, and through service. While at the same time, we engage them in warfare. Both. Both at the same time. Every precious holy thing that you've ever done, you've done with your body. Every sin that you've ever committed, you committed it with your body. That's how important it is. There isn't anything good that you've done without using your body. When Jesus comes, Jesus comes as a man to judge us. You will be resurrected and given, if you've passed away, that is, you will be resurrected and your body will be reconstituted. So you, as a man or woman, will stand in your body before Jesus Christ, who is a man. So a body will judge your body. That's it. You will have no excuses because he was just like us in every way. He knows what we could and couldn't do. He understands all that. He understands everything. So our body is vital in this whole process. Our body is important as we walk through life to enjoy the presence of God in our bodies. He says, when you pray, take this body of yours into a private place and do it. It says, Jesus took his body up a mountain. He took it into the desert. He took it there. And that's where he worshipped and that's where he prayed. See, we can do now else but take this physical frame with us. And it's vital. 
and important to God. We'll close it there and come back shortly after the break. Thank you. Okay, welcome back after the break. We've dealt with the body. I want to move on now to dealing with uh, our, our mind and our emotions in relationship uh, to God and uh, appreciating his presence. Two things can really affect us uh, in our mind and in our emotions. They are, if we choose to sin, uh, and we willfully choose to sin, um, we open up a door for the enemy to just come in and invade our lives. The other area is if we've been hurt in the past and that hasn't been ministered to and um, we're carrying the wounds of that, the enemy takes advantage there in our whole mental approach to things and, uh, and in our emotions. What has happened, somehow our these homes where the spirit lives, the door has been opened for evil spirits to come and occupy us, to take advantage of us. Like I say, they come in mostly because we've continued in a sin and we've, we've allowed that to happen in our lives or we've been hurt from the past. The major hurts in our life, they come primarily through things like rejection, uh, if we've been hurt, offended, and people have dealt with us harshly, we might find that we're unforgiving and we become bitter and resentful towards people. Another uh, major hurt area is that of fear. Some people just grow up in an environment of fear and uh, maybe because of their parents or their home or different circumstances, maybe at school or whatever, and fear uh, is a wound in their lives. Sometimes we're wounded uh, in this way just because of what our ancestors have been involved with and they've passed on these things through the family that have wounded us. So they're not related to sins. They are sins that have, have been happened to us and we're wounded as a result of that. And often we need deliverance uh, from these things uh, in the past. The sin area where we've chosen to sin, um, primarily that's in rebellion. All sin is rooted in rebellion. Wanting one's own way, wanting to do what you want to do, not being told by others what to do. The second major area of sin is that of sexual sin. And uh, a third one, another big area the Bible deals with, is that of being involved with the occult. And uh, as it were, having tea with the devil in whatever way that might be. Uh, whether we're looking into the future, whether we are trying to manipulate or control people, which would be like a spirit of witchcraft. These things open the door for what we call the demonic uh, evil spirits to come in and to occupy us or other things related to these. So the hurts are rejection, unforgiveness, fear and curses and the sins are rebellion, sexual sins and the occult. This opens us up and the enemy comes and occupies our soulish area. We need to be freed, set free, if we're going to enjoy the presence of God. Because while those things occupy our soul, 
we're never really going to enjoy the presence of God. We might for a season, and then these things will stop it. And so people, if they're troubled with any of these things, or they feel that they, they need help, they need to be set free, there are besetting things that keep coming into their lives, you simply need to seek somebody out who can pray with you and for you to get you set free and delivered of these things. So that's in the area of our mind and our emotions, uh, so we can live free before God. Jesus said, I've come to set the people free. I've come to release the captives, the prisoners. I've come to bring them into a place of liberty that we might what? That we might enjoy his presence more. The next area is that we've got to learn to be people who share. It's important to God that we, we freely give. Freely give of what we have. The Word of God says, you freely received a lot from me. I want you now to freely give. We must discipline ourselves then in this area to be generous. Fear can stop us being generous. Fear says to you, mm, go very carefully with that because uh, you don't know if whether well, yeah, you'll have enough and you don't know whether God will supply all those needs. and uh, They're just lies. You know God will supply your need. You know that. And yet we allow fear to control and to dominate us and then cause us not to share or to give what we possibly could give. If we walk before the Lord and we see a need, we should meet that need. If the Spirit of God impresses upon us to meet needs in other people, we should do it. Not only uh, material needs, it could be emotional needs, or uh, you have what, it, what they need, then you should be generous, generous in your time, generous with your money, generous with these things. It says in uh, Luke 6 and 38, it says, give and it will be given to you. Well, I presume if you don't give, then it won't be given to you. It's simple, really, the Bible. We, don't make it, we make it a little bit more complicated than it is, really. Give, he says, and it will be given to you. A good measure will be given to you, indicating, listen, you give and I'll give you more. I'll give you a better measure. Not only that, I'll press it down. I'll shake it, as it were, It'll fill you up, and more than that, it'll run over. Shaken down, it says, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We have got to meditate, because these are what other disciplines we look at. Stay with this scripture until it becomes a reality. So often we read the scriptures too quickly and we don't give it enough time to enter into us and to speak to us and to become part of us. It gets as far as the head and then we've moved on. It has to get down into the inside of us as we meditate on God's word and allow it to take its place and we will change. We will appreciate his presence entering into us and talking to us. I've got this in the notes. I should have underlined it. Um, it says this. If it has not occurred to you already, then the point must be made now. 
that the practice of his presence of God involves discipline. There's no shortcuts. We are disciples. And as disciples then, we choose to be disciplined. That's what we want. We want the discipline of God. It involves discipline. The things that I've been suggesting need deliberate and concentrated effort. It is much easier to relax and let things happen of their own accord, but it is the disciplined, the disciples, who get the best results. You don't have to really change at all. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to heaven. That's secure. There's not a problem with that. But God says, listen, I've got so much more for you. But it will take some discipline in your life. And as you choose to discipline, then I can only provide you with blessing and blessing and blessing as you do this. Many of you notice start the Christian life with real passion. They're going to save the world. It's so wonderful. They've discovered the Lord Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven. It is absolutely wonderful. Then as time moves on, this passion seems to ebb away. Things cool down a little bit. Now you say, well, that's only natural if you find something exciting and then you just, it becomes the normal run of things. That's not God's plan. God wants you up there all the time. He wants you to discover new things all the time about God, new heights, new experiences, new blessings, that every day becomes an exciting adventure with God. It's an adventure, discovering how far we can go with him. For most Christians, the road is very broad. And lots of people walk along this road. For those who want to press on, really press on, the road is very narrow. It's difficult, but it's worth it. It's always worth pressing on in. In this idea of being generous, it's an overflow of our lives. He says, I'll pour in to you so it will overflow from you. If there's no flow out of you, there'll be no flow into you. It has to keep moving on, moving on. We hold on to things sometimes thinking that won't be replaced. But if you hold on to it, it just dies. We have to love more, give more, believe more, all the time giving out of ourselves so God can pour more into ourselves. We also need to share what we know. You have great understanding because you have a relationship with God. So anyone that you meet that doesn't have a relationship with God, to some degree you have an obligation to help them. Just if you met a poor person who was hungry, you would have an obligation to do something for them. We do have obligations to help the poor. You have an obligation. And so when someone doesn't know Christ, we do have an obligation to say something to them, to share something with them. You say, well, I don't know much about it. I, don't, I wouldn't know what to say. I, I, uh, just tell them what God means to you. We let God use the words that we would 
speak and let the Spirit of God do the rest. As I'm teaching you now, I'm doing my best, but is it good enough? No, it's not. I need the Spirit of God somehow to operate through the words to transform your life, to do something. I know for one minute it's nothing to do with my intellect. It's nothing to do with, with how good I am. I could do a good thing and I could make it as, as good as I can make it, but that isn't what works. What works is the Spirit of God on those words that just, just do what it needs to do in the heart of every person to transform their lives. When you share your gospel, no matter how pitiful you might think it is, the Spirit of God can just get on one word and do something in someone's heart. Then you walk away thinking, oh, that was hopeless. Well, it might be from your perspective, but don't worry about that. You do what you can do and you allow the Spirit of God to do the rest. What you share, what you know, is vital. It's vital. And sometimes it's not what you say, but it's who you are. It's not the words. They're impressed by you. They might even think, she didn't make much sense, but there's something about that person. I don't know what it is. See, it's the Spirit of God as we step forward to give of ourselves, to give of what we have, to give of who we are. And then we know the presence of God with us. You see, if we're stingy and mean, the presence of God is, it draws back. Who does God really love? It says in Corinthians, he loves a cheerful giver. I had a lot of trouble with that verse early on. I thought, I thought he loved everyone. Why does he say he loves a cheerful giver? Because in loving them, he can draw close to them, you see. But if they're not generous, he draws himself back a little bit. He doesn't reject you, but I don't want him to draw away from me at all. I want to, him to come as close to me as he possibly can. And it's me and my attitude and the way that I am that causes him to come closer and closer to me. When you share the things about Christ, you're not selling something cheap. You're selling or you're giving or you're offering something of a vast wealth. I once heard the story about a, a man who was wanting to buy a car. Uh, he wanted to buy a Ford car, fairly cheap, economical car. So he goes into the showroom and he, he shows interest. Well, you know what the, the salesman's like of the car. He doesn't let this man go, does he? He hangs on to him and hangs on to him and talks to him and offers him this and offers him that and offers him everything, everything, everything. He knows as soon as that man walks out of the showroom, if he hasn't got a deal, he won't come back, he'll buy that car somewhere else. And so he pressurises him to, to sign now with him. Another man walks down the road and he wants to buy a car, but he wants to buy a Rolls Royce. Quality, you see. So he walks into the showroom and he shows interest. Well, the salesman doesn't jump all over him. 
He doesn't do it like that. He might, after a few minutes, just wander up and start talking about what a nice day it is and all these sorts of things. And, and he just allows the person with the £100,000 or whatever he's got in his pocket to buy a Rolls Royce, he allows him to just make his mind up. It's as though he builds a relationship with the man and then the sale will be his. We're not selling Jesus. We have a connection with Almighty God. You don't have to push it or sell it. You simply have to make relationship with people and let what you have start to impress them because you have something of great value and worth. I've discovered the more I talk about Jesus, the more natural it becomes to talk about him. If I never talk about him, it's clumsy and it's awkward. I've got some little cards printed. On one side it said, God loves you. And on the other side, it says, Jesus saves. So I got a thousand of these printed. Um, I think if I could get one, I'll show it to you. And so what did you do this for? See, I think the, f the two most... There we go. the two most important statements in the world. The most important thing that I could ever tell anybody in my life is that God loves you. And the other thing I could tell them is that Jesus saves. So I've got these in my pocket all the time. I've got them in my bag, but I didn't want to wander over there, okay. And so when I'm traveling, I think, who can I give one of these to? Okay, now I don't want to give them out like confetti. That's not the idea. Now I might leave them if I have a cup of coffee somewhere there, or I might slip it in the place where they put the tea and the coffee and the, you know, the, just, just put them down or just, just leave it around. You never know how God's going to use that. But I say, Lord, who do you want me to give this to? There must be someone. And as God speaks to me, I just say, would Excuse me, I'm just impressed to give you this. There's no other conversation, don't have to say anything else. They can throw it back in my face, that's all right. Or they can take it, and I've done my job. They can engage me in conversation, and then that's wonderful. But it's not to push Christ on them, it's to open the door. See, I've got something of great value, and I want to give it away. I want to give it away. We pass hundreds and thousands of people if we wander about who don't know Jesus Christ at all, and you do. I'll leave that one with you. That's what I'm doing. That's what God told me to do, spoke to me to do those things. I've got to number 14 now, the 14th discipline. Um, it's really the last one, because the last one is, is not much at all, really. I want to talk about overcoming with God. <laughs> Some of you are not going to like this. It's the least favourite of all. I'm going to suggest to you when trials 
come into your life, you willingly and joyfully open the door and welcome them. Every trial, every problem, every difficulty, you say, come on in. Thank you, Lord, for this tremendous opportunity that you've presented. No door slamming round here, please. You know that verse in James, uh, where James in, in chapter 1 says, you know, whenever you face trials of all difficulties, you know, count them as pure joy, and you've sort of thought, ha, 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 how many Christians have chuckled when they've read that one, I wouldn't like to guess. I'll tell you what, J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, um, New Testament, he says this, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realise that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. I can't think of anything that attracts God more into our presence than when you're going through it and you're just praising him. He is overwhelmed. He just can't wait to get more and more into your presence. He loves it so much when we praise him. These trials and temptations that come, they don't come from God. God doesn't say it. It says God doesn't test any man. He doesn't do that. But they come. He permits them to come, to happen. He could stop them. He could stop everything. Of course he could. He's God. God is at liberty to do whatever God wants to do unless God stops himself from doing it by, by what he has said. So he allows these things to come that we might endure, that our faith might grow within us. You grow through the hard times, never through the easy times. The easy times are simply a respite between all the hard times. And the more you're interested in pressing on, the more hard times you're going to get. For you not to have any, I would think that God wasn't interested in me. I just, I just think, no, God, come on. So to be a little bit under pressure... It just pushes you more into God, more to pray, more to press in. They don't come to demean us, but they come only to develop us in our lives. Try not to become upset and stressed, okay, by trials. We can get to a place where we respond correctly to them. If you feel you can't cope, that's all right. It's perfectly all right. Of course you can't cope. You can't be blase about everything. There are some serious things that come to your life and you go, I can't do this, God. This is just too difficult. Of course, it's then you draw upon all the things that you've read, all the things that you've learned. It's then you think, no, Christ lives in me. What did, what did the Lord say to the Apostle Paul? 
He said, Paul, I'm not going to do anything. My grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here with you. You've got to walk through this, but we will walk through it together. He didn't listen the first time, did he? He did it again. He said, God, no, this isn't. Get this off me because it's too difficult for me to cope with. And a second time he said, I'm not going to do that. It said he pleaded with God three times and the answer was the same. I'm not going to shift it. We're going to go through this thing together. I'm so encouraged that Paul did it three times, aren't you? Because he's such a super saint and I'm such a horrible disaster. It encourages me to think, wow, this super saint had to, had to be corrected, as it were, that he kept coming back. And because as we walk through it with God, then we appreciate his presence, his strength, his wisdom coming to us. I can't do this, God. This is too difficult for me. But he ministers himself. He draws closer to us. They say one of the most awful things is to be isolated whether in prison or whatever in life, to be on your own is an awful thing. Um, they, I read the story of Wormbrandt in prison, uh, a Romanian Christian, I believe, who was tortured for his faith. What they did to really punish him was they put him in a cell in isolation and no one spoke to him for a long time. The soldiers that were outside used to wear socks on the outside of their shoes. So as they walked past the cell, they couldn't even hear the sound of the soldiers. There was nothing, nothing, nothing. His food would just be put there, nothing, no sound at all. He, he records in this book that after a time, he forgot what the alphabet was. And he tried really hard to, to, to say every day what the letters of the alphabet were. But this thing of isolation so affected his mind and he thought, I can't stand this, because they wanted him to renounce his Christianity. And he came to a point and he just cried out to God. He said, God, I can't do this. This is so awful. And just, just at that point where he was to break, well, it's always the 11th hour, and it? Well, for us, it's always the 11th hour because that's the point we think we're going to break, but of course we don't know. I mean, that's when God intervenes. All of a sudden, a light came into his cell and filled the cell with this brilliant light. And from that moment on, he was never alone ever again in that cell. See, God took him to a point, tested him to a point of endurance that his faith, his faith would remain. And in the end, he said it was brilliant. He just loved the cell. He loved the quietness because God was now present with him in the midst of that cell. John the Baptist, remember, was banished, uh, sorry, not John the Baptist, John the, uh, St. John, uh, the disciple, banished to the Isle of Patmos, wasn't he? Alone, no one. And it says there in Revelation 1.10, he said, on the Lord's day, 
I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I wonder how agonising it was to be banished on that island with no one to talk to. He was being punished for his testimony. He was this great elderly father of the church. But of course his isolation brought him to a point where he was given that tremendous revelation of heaven and all the wonderful things that he saw. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He was convinced, it says, that he and Christ were inseparable. It says this in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you look at all these pairs, he takes in every possible combination. He says, neither life nor death will separate me. He says, whether I'm dead or whether I'm alive, you're here, Christ, with me. He says, whether it's angels or demons, neither will separate me. Whether it's something good or something bad, he says, nothing will separate me from you. He says, whether it's the present or the future, nothing will separate me. Nor any power, neither height nor depth, whether I'm in heaven or hell or on the earth, nothing can separate me from you. From the love of God? What is the love of God? It's God himself, because God is love. With God, love isn't an attribute like it is with us. Love is God himself. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can separate me from God. Nothing can. That's what J.B. Phillips was saying. Welcome it. Welcome it, because in the welcoming of it and the acceptance of it, God draws closer as we walk through these things with him. When we are shut off from the presence of others, it is an opportunity for the presence of God to draw even closer. As a young man, I only knew the overcoming power of God in the testimony of others. I suppose I had quite a charmed life growing up in a Christian home, a loving home. It was fine. I loved my school. I loved, I loved everything about that. I just, just enjoyed it. I had lots of friends. And, just, and when I came into the ministry some years later, I used to read these testimonies and then I used to preach about these testimonies that I read in a book because I realised I didn't have any of my own. So I said to God, God, please, can you give me some testimonies so I have my own testimonies to share? And I just, I chuckle to myself now because I think God had a little laugh and he says, don't worry about that, Philip. I've got plenty of testimonies for you. Okay.
looking back, um, there's been some very difficult things in my life that I've had to deal with. And I thank God for every one of them. I really do. Now at the time, I don't think I thank God like I should have, because I'm older and wiser now. And I praise God for those challenges now. But now going forward, I will praise God for every challenge that he presents. I will. I will. Because I know what God has said. And it's important to me that I have his presence. And so I don't complain and moan and grumble and grizzle. I just say, come, come on, we'll do this together. Of course, the greatest challenge to our Lord was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can't imagine facing the crucifixion, knowing it just wasn't the physical thing, but the whole of hell was arrayed against him. And to know he had to go through that, just the physical, the spiritual, we can't imagine what it is to take the sin of the whole world upon us and that we would be punished to an extent that God would forgive everyone of every sin that was ever committed or would be committed in the world. That's horrendous, just the very thought of it. We just, just don't know. And so we know that he prays and he asks others to pray with him and they, they let him down so dismally. But it says, when he finished that prayer time, angels came and ministered to him. Oh, fantastic. In the hour of your greatest need, you will receive the greatest strengthening. Now I know you're all not going to go home and pray that something awful and evil will come upon you and that you'll be able to, uh, you know. But we need to be prepared. We don't know how this world is going to end. We don't know how evil things will become. We don't know. Some of our forefathers have gone through some awful, awful, terrible things in their lives. We don't know. You may be called to faith a Gethsemane of your own a deep time of anguish and challenge. And only then will you know the, the powerful strengthening of God's presence with you. Which brings me to the last of these, uh, and it's that we practice these things over and over again. I want to finish with this statement, and it's this. We are never alone. At the times of seeming aloneness, he is closer to you than you realize. He is watching every move that you make. But do not take his presence for granted. Practice it. He has said he will never leave you or forsake you. But you must constantly remind yourself of that fact. Like all things in life, Practice makes perfect. Determine to practice the presence of God in your life. Amen.
and um, we'll finish on that one. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.